What's unusual about the snow being prepared for the Beijing Winter Olympics? Can you name the seven seas of the world? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this half hour of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off ramp—a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, Marcia, I have a question about the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing,、mm-hmm. and I want to know what's unusual about the snow being But, prepared for those Winter Olympics. Okay, well, it's uh, uh, Beijing has winter, doesn't yeah, it? Sure. Yeah, sure. But are they low on snow, so they're Uh, bringing it in from the Alps or something? Well, you got it. Every flake of that snow is going to be artificial. Really? Yeah. Now, alpine skiing at the Beijing Winter Olympics will take place in the Yanqing District, which it's very, very cold. But the rest of the story is, while it's cold in Yanqing, it snows very little there. So every flake in the 2022 Winter Olympics. Every snowflake will be man-made. In other words, artificial snow. Why did they bother to have it there? Don't know, Marge. <laughs> That's just. That's a very、dumb. good question, isn't you it? Remember, I remember when they had it in Sun Valley. Not a problem with snow. It <laughs> snows every day. All right. Okay. All right, Bob. You've heard of the seven seas of the world? Yes, I have. Well, tell me what they are. Oh dear. Let me see. Atlantic, Pacific, Mediterranean. I think the Arctic Ocean is considered one. You got the Caspian Sea. You got the Black Sea, and you got the Dead Sea. But that's a lake, so I don't think I've got them all. No, you don't. Okay, what are they? Okay, okay. The seven are the North Atlantic Ocean, the South Atlantic. Oh, Ocean. really? So we divided the oceans up: North Pacific, South Pacific, okay, Indian, Arctic, and the Antarctic Oceans.、Uh, I'll be darned. Yeah. So those are the seven. Well, what about the Caspian, the Black, and the other seas? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. Apparently, those aren't considered <laughs> d- parts of the. I don't know. No,、seas. I wouldn't have gotten that either, Bob. Okay. Well, going back to snow, Marcia, and the cold weather. Okay. Okay. I have a question that is related to some of the questions I've asked in the past about the coldest places and so forth. Yeah. This is what are the ten coldest cities in the United States? In the United States, ten coldest cities in the United States. You lived in one of them. <laughs> I did. Yeah, six、wow. of the ten coldest cities in the United States. This is a hint. Six are in the Dakotas. No kidding. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Well, I, you're not going to ask me to name ten. Ten. No, just ten. <laughs> yes, ten. No. I, okay. All right. I'll just try to think of three. What was the city you lived in? Well, I. The only coldest one I can think of is Marquette, Michigan. Marquette, Michigan. Yes, the minimum average temperature there is five point two degrees Fahrenheit, and the all-time lowest temperature there was thirty-four degrees Fahrenheit. Wow! It's number nine of the top ten coldest cities in the U.S.、Yeah. Did I ever tell you that I used to picnic on the frozen lake? Oh、uh, yeah, right. Barbecue. I did. Okay. Did, did you really? Yeah, with fellow reporters. That's、oh. fun times. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to ask you what is the coldest city, and then I'll tell you the others here.、There's... Okay. I'll I'll just、uh, I I would think that、uh, something like Duluth. Hmm. Hmm. Or Buffalo. Duluth is one of them. Okay. So now I got two. I, I said I'll come、you、up with three. You got two of ten. Okay. Well, the Dakotas. Oh, I always get, and I'm thinking that's Montana. 
what the heck is in Dakota? Uh, oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, I know. Now you've offended people. I know. I have. I Let me take you out of your misery here. Thank you. Here are the ones in reverse order. This is the uh, David Letterman Top 10, okay? Oh, okay. The Top 10 Coldest Cities. Number 10, Huron, South Dakota, Marquette, Bismarck, North Dakota, St. Cloud, Minnesota, Aberdeen, South Dakota, Duluth, Minnesota, and uh, Fargo, North Dakota. That's up to four. Okay. And, and the, the top, top three, three are? Number three, Wilston, North Dakota, Grand Forks, North Dakota, and number one is Fairbanks, Alaska. Yeah. I was thinking of Anchorage, but Fairbanks yeah. is colder. Here's how cold it is. 226 <laughs> days below freezing. 226. In, in Fairbanks? Yes. Holy camoly. It's the coldest city in the United States. 226 days below freezing and a minimum average temperature of minus 13. That's the minimum. And the lowest recorded temperature was 66 below zero on January 14th, 1934. I wonder how many, how many people live there. I have to look that up later. I think I've got everything but that information. Yeah, <laughs> that's why. It's funny. None of those are huge cities when you think about it. They're all pretty small. And that's the reason why. That's part of the reason. So those are the top 10 coldest cities in the United States. That comes from travel trivia. I should have jumped on that site. Okay, speaking of temperature, this is a perfect segue, Bob. United States uses Fahrenheit, right? To yes. measure temperature. How many other countries use Fahrenheit? I think there's only one other one in the world. <laughs> and I, I forget the other one. It's in the, it's a small country in the Caribbean, I think. Isn't it? Everybody well, else is using Celsius or centigrade temperatures. There's more than one, but it's only the Cayman Islands, the Bahamas, you're right, Belize, and Palu. They cling to the Fahrenheit system, as do we. It's Daniel Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. We just apparently had a thing for him. But the rest of the world uses Andre Celsius system, where water temperature freezing is zero right. when it turns to ice, and water boils at? 100. That's right. I know. It's such a beautiful system. Celsius. Isn't that amazing? You'd think we would have gone to that system yes. since it's so simple. It is. You know, and zero is freezing, a hundred is boiling. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That makes sense to me. You know why we didn't do it? It's probably related to the same reason when the metric system didn't yeah, succeed. We don't People want just it. well, we we don't want it. We want to drive on this side of the road <laughs> and we right. want this. We're cowboys at heart. Oh. All right. I have a, a couple of music questions for you here, okay? Okay. Uh, what musician holds the Guinness World Record as the best-selling jazz artist? Uh, best-selling jazz artist. Is it artist. somebody like Kenny G? That's who it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I'll bet it's not John Coltrane. No, it's no, not it's Coltrane. Kenny yeah, G. It is Kenny G. Now, his real name is Kenneth Gourlick. Goes, really? Yeah, it goes by the name of Kenny G. Understand. And that's according to the Guinness World's Records, the best-selling jazz artist of all time. The sax man delights and divides. That came from a New York Times story. All right, the other question. In January 1970, Marsha, pop music question, okay? So uh -huh. something you may be more familiar with. Than... Well, I got that one right. Oh, that's true. <laughs> okay, well, never mind. In January 1970, the song Let It Be was first released on an album. Who was the artist? Okay. Well, I take it it wasn't the Beatle. That's number one. You're right. It wasn't the Beatles. Yeah. Who uh, was it, though? I'm thinking it was... Did you say it was became a number one record? I didn't say that. I said the song Let It Be was first released on an album in January 1970, and who was okay. the artist? I'll just say... Uh, was it a woman? Yes. 
Was it Carly Simon? No. This is an interesting story, and I, I Judy Collins noticed this when I was watching the Get Back series on uh, Disney Plus, the uh-huh. the documentary of the Beatles that was actually shot back in 1969. Uh-huh. It was Aretha Franklin. Really? Yeah, and they're just talking about it at the time, and then I, I found an article on it. So you can't call her version of that song a cover version because it, it preceded. Was, that's right. Preceded the Beatles single, so she had the original version. Now, how did that happen? How? Well, in that documentary, after one of the band's run-throughs of the song, George Harrison suggests the group should give that to Aretha Franklin to record, and Paul McCartney agrees. He says, we should record it and give it to her. It would be great for Aretha Franklin, that number. Well, you have to remember Lennon and McCartney began their careers wanting to be the uh, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein of their generation. They wanted to write songs that other people would sing. Uh Uh-huh. Really? Yeah, that makes sense. And then Paul McCartney recently said what he always used to like to do was think, who would I really like to record this and get an early version to people I'd love to record it? So I sent Let It Be to Aretha Franklin. And 13 months went by after they recorded their version. In the meantime, the Queen of Soul recorded her gospel version, and it preceded the Beatles version by seven weeks on her album, This Girl's in Love with You, in January 1970. I didn't know that. No? I knew that other people covered their songs once in a while, but I had no idea they actively would send them, here's a demo, we'd love Uh to have you record this. And they did that to Aretha Franklin. Just turned out that she released hers before they released theirs. All right, Bob. Uh, Did you know that the famous 1948 film Easter Parade, which most human beings have seen, I think, Mm -hmm. starring Judy Garland and Fred Astaire? Yeah. Fred was not originally cast for that movie at all. Oh, I didn't know that. No, he was not the first choice. Who was? Was it Bing Crosby? No. Was it uh, Gene Kelly? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, first you go for the... Big and obviously, Gene can dance. And he broke his ankle. So, oh, my goodness. So they had to scratch him from the oh, show. Oh, so he was intended to be in yeah, that film. He was supposed I didn't to know be that. the star. And he would have been a lot cuter in it. Uh, Fred never pulled off the romantic lead in that, to my satisfaction. I know. You, you just don't like Fred Astaire. <laughs> well, he's, he's homely. Oh, well, there we go again. <laughs> uh, it always comes up. All right. Marcia, money. Here's a question How much did COVID help household savings? Well, God, how would I know that? Well, I've got the answer, Marsh. <laughs> Thanks in part to those pandemic-era stimulus funds. American households had approximately $2.5 trillion in excess savings at the end of 2021. Oh, I believe that. Okay, I have a question for you about a politician who recently stepped down from her role as German Chancellor, Angela Merkel. What four distinctions does she hold as a leader? Do you know what she was before she became a politician? Uh, A nurse. She was a scientist. No kidding. Yeah. She received a doctorate in quantum chemistry and worked as a research scientist until 1989. Okay. What are the four distinctions during her tenure as... You didn't let me answer. Oh, I thought you didn't know. I don't. Okay. (laughs) Oh, come on. I don't know. She was the first German chancellor born after World War II. Really? All right. The first to hail from what was once East Germany during the Cold War. Oh, okay. And the first woman to hold the office, period. The first female chancellor of Germany. So those were the uh, three distinctions. The fourth was she was a scientist. Oh, okay. First leader to be a scientist. Well, that's very interesting. Well, you got anything else there right now? I do. I have a new segment, Bob. Okay. (laughs) A new segment coming up, which is? It's called, Who Am I? Who am I? So a question, I have to guess who it is. Yeah. We'll get to that in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. 
You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Who Am I? (laughs) That's the new segment with Bob and Marcia Smith. It's not going to be a regular, I don't think, but I find it interesting. Okay, Okay. so you've got a question. You're going to describe somebody, and I have to figure out who it is. You have to say, who is this person? This sounds like a good board game. It does, doesn't it? Why don't you build that, and we can sell it, Marsh? It's some good retirement money going for There we go, yeah. (laughs) Okay. This person was the first artist ever to send a cartoon by radio. Cartoon by radio? I thought maybe you'd know the answer to that. How does that work? Oh, maybe it's a facsimile. Faxing was using radio technology. Okay, so it could be done? Yeah. The first ever to send a cartoon by radio. The first to send a drawing by telephone from Chicago to New York. Mm. He broadcast the first radio program from mid-ocean to a nationwide network. And he was the first to broadcast to every nation of the world simultaneously, assisted by the Corps of Linguists, who translated his message into various tongues. Good Lord. And he was the first to broadcast from Australia to the United States in 1932. And lastly, the first to broadcast from Buenos Aires to New York in 1933. Pedro Rodriguez. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. My goodness, listen to that list of things. Well, you know who this is. He did a whole host of firsts, including his broadcast. Was it Rudy Valley? No. Is it somebody from that era? Let me tell you, he was a cartoonist. He was a cartoonist. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so was it the man who used to draw the... he drew the uh, Gertie the Dinosaur. What was his name? And he, he traveled around the country lecturing with this motion picture of this dinosaur cartoon and talking to him. And No. So he worked for a New York newspaper, and he was the cartoonist. Okay. Uh, the sports cartoonist, specifically. Oh, really? Yeah. He did all sorts of things. And he it was a slow sports day, and he didn't... Uh, have much. So we opened his drawer and there were a bunch of weird little things in the drawer, little weird sports event, you know, the person to hold their breath underwater the longest. Oh, blah, like Ripley, blah. believe it or not type stuff. Exactly like Ripley, believe it or not, because he threw his ideas on his editor's desk, went to lunch and he wrote on it, believe it or not, and he listed <sighs> six. So, oh, so it's him. Robert Ripley. I'll be darned. And he went on to become a huge hit, his books, and he became incredibly rich. Yes. And it all began with a slow day at the sports desk. See, I didn't know he was a uh, journalist, uh, artist, basically. That's why I thought maybe on this one I'd get you. Well, you did. In 1933, Ripley introduced the first of his famous museums. They're called auditoriums. Auditorium. Yeah. It's not A-U-D, it's O-D-D. O-D-D. I love that. That's right. It's what some people call our home. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. His cartoons are still in print, and it holds the title of the world's longest-running syndicated cartoon and can be found daily on Ripley's.com. So they started when? 1929. And still running. Yeah, and at its height, had a readership of 80 million people. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. And uh, what were those six firsts again? First artist ever to send a cartoon by radio, first to send a drawing by telephone, Broadcast the first radio program from mid-ocean to nationwide network. Wow. First to broadcast from Australia to the United States, and the first to broadcast from Buenos Aires to New York in 1933. Wow, he was quite a pioneer in broadcasting as well. I didn't know that. Yeah, he would come up with these oddities and then illustrate them. Right. That's that's what he was, a cartoonist. Now it all makes sense, because I always liked the way those always little panels with the picture and then handwritten what the fact was or the interesting thing. Yeah, 
I, I didn't think I realized that was him doing all the cartoons. I didn't know that cartoons. either. I had no idea he did that. That makes it so personal to yeah. know that he did that yeah. himself. At the time of his death in 1949, he had in his employ 66 people, including linguists, research experts, and 12 secretaries to handle mail and authenticate his amazing facts. Wow. He lived alone, the 29 rooms of his home, on his private island estate on Long Island Sound, uh. New York. And the 20 rooms of his New York studio were filled with some of the most unique objects of the world. He was a world traveler. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Had his own island. I had no idea he was such an entrepreneur with such a big organization just dedicated yeah. to finding yeah. things, translating them, yeah. and uh, corroborating what's accurate, what isn't accurate. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that's good. It gives a lot more uh, validity to a lot of those claims then. Well, Marsha, I have two stories that are Good Samaritan kind of stories that have been in the news recently. And, you know, we hear so much bad news these days, and there's so much political division. You think people don't care for each other. But these are two stories about people who do. Okay. So it's kind of fun here. Two days after Christmas, Michael Gartner summoned the employees of the Iowa Cubs. It's a minor league baseball team to a staff meeting in Des Moines because they had just sold the team and he wanted to give all the employees business cards. So he handed out envelopes, but inside were checks worth $2,000 for every year each employee had worked for the team. And there are people who'd worked for the team for 20 years, 30 years, so they got checks for like $60,000. What year was this? This just happened. He gave away a total of $600,000 from the money he earned by selling the team. That's so rare. This fellow, Michael Gartner, He was a former editor of the Des Moines Register, a former president of NBC News. He won a Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing, and and then he bought this team affiliated with Chicago Cubs. And everybody says he was always a great boss. They had 401ks and everything else for years. And here he calls this meeting because he'd sold the team, and they said there were people with tears streaming down their cheeks. Well, it's a rare thing to do and the right thing to do that uh, they made him rich. That's excellent. Good news. Here's a hockey story. Uh, A lady named Nadia Popovici, she was attending a game of the Seattle Kraken playing the Vancouver Canucks. She sat behind a plexiglass where the visiting team was in front of her. And she kept shifting her eyes from the hockey game to the back of Brian Hamilton's neck. Brian Hamilton was an assistant equipment manager with him, and he had a mole in the back of his and neck. she could tell it was a... She could tell yeah, it was small. possibly cancerous. And she said she just couldn't help herself. And she told her parents she was with them. She goes, I- I've got to tell them. So what she did was she typed a message on her phone and waited for the game to end. And then she waved him over several times and she put her phone up against the plexiglass and the message was, the mole on the back of your neck is possibly cancerous. Please see a doctor. And then he asked his partner that night, do you see something back there? His partner said, yeah, I do. So then he went to the team doctor and he says, could this be dangerous? And he goes, yes, it could. And after he had it removed, he waited for the biopsy that came back. The doctor told him, if I had ignored this, for four or five years, you wouldn't be here. I'll be darned. So she saved his life. <laughs> well, then that began, we got to find this woman and thank her. The team and he did this. He sent messages out on Twitter. The team had a press conference. They're looking for this woman. Does anybody know who it is? And one morning, she woke up with texts from her mom saying, you've got to call these people. <laughs> so here's what happened. This is such a cool thing. Both teams got together, and here's what they did. At the next game, both teams presented her with a combined $10,000 scholarship to make sure she gets through medical school. Oh, that is so awesome. Isn't that great? 
I just thought that was so wonderful. Discovering a cancerous mole from the stands, she saves a life. New York Times story from uh, January 4th of 2022. So Jeez. two Good Samaritan stories are yes. to cheer you up. Well, we should do a lot of those. Yeah. Okay. This is from my brand new big Christmas book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Guinness Book of World yes. Records? Okay. How tall is the world's largest sandcastle? Is this something that still exists? Yeah, I, I'm sure it's gone now. It was a 2019, they built it for a sandcastle festival in Germany. Wow. And it took, maybe this will help you, 12,125 tons of sand. Oh, my goodness. And they just mixed it only with water. So it's just a legitimate, plain sandcastle. I don't know. 10 feet tall would be huge, but probably more than that. 20 Uh, feet tall? Probably. How tall? 58 feet tall and over 85 feet around. It took three and a half weeks for an international team of 12 sculptors and eight technicians to create this glorious-looking structure. It's beautiful. It's got these turrets and all this stuff. Oh, my goodness. It's just sand and water, and it's just splendid-looking. Isn't that nice when people come together to do things like that? Well, if only the world could operate this. (laughs) 12, you know, international team from people all around the world. That sounds great. Yeah, just build a sandcastle together. I think there's a metaphor there for international relations about it, you know. I think so. Getting washed away by the water. But that's another (laughs) thing. Okay. Here's a fun fact and question, Bob. How did ancient Romans punish men found guilty of rape? This is a fun fact? (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) I hesitate to think how. Is this fun in a uh, kind of a a sadistic sense? uh, uh, Yes. Oh, okay. irony, Bob. Okay. Well, I'm not going to even touch it, so you tell me the answer. Yeah, they had their testicles crushed between two stones. Oh, dear. So that's a good thwarting method. Oh, gosh, Marsh. (laughs) I hope we're not ending on that. No. Speaking of sex, Bob. Okay. (laughs) I did. I I don't know if it's the same thing. (laughs) Rape and sex are two different things. That's for sure. And so is this. Okay. You're familiar with, I think it's called the Ramsey's condom. Ramsey's, yeah. You've that's heard a, of that? That's a brand, yeah. It's a brand. Well, what makes that a dubious name for this product? What makes that a dubious name? Yeah, for, for a condom. Because Ramses was a ruler of ancient Egypt? He was. Yeah. A pharaoh, the great pharaoh Ramses too. But the, the dubiousness is he fathered more than 160 children. Oh. <laughs> So his condoms didn't work. Well, I would say, would you really want to name it after that guy? I don't think so. <laughs> it's not a birth control device that we would recommend. All right, I got another nature question here for you. Okay. This is another recent thing in the news, okay? Name this creature. Scientists have finally found one that truly lives up to its name. What is it? It's a creepy crawly, but it has a certain name that refers to a certain number of something. And this is the first one they've ever found that actually has that many. Okay, I'll say, not the caterpillar, the... You have some of these around the house once in a while, you see them. Oh, ladybugs? No. No, these Uh, have a lot of legs. Centipedes. Centipedes are millipedes. Yeah. The millipedes, the name means thousand-footed. But until 2021, none had ever been found. And in September, a species was found 200 feet underground in West Australia. It does have 1,000 feet. You're kidding. And uh, this is amazing. It has more than 1,300 legs. And the incredible thing, it's uh, tiny, 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 because these millipedes are just a few inches long and less than a millimeter wide. They have no eyes. They look like angel pasta, but they have angel up to 1,300 1,300 legs. Wow. Now, 
They found this in an underground uh, borehole that mining companies dig to search for precious minerals. And it was found by a Dr. Bruno Bozzato of a company that was hired by the mining firms to study the wildlife that the mining might affect. So how do they know it has 1,300 legs? Because they counted them under a microscope, painstaking process, 1,306 legs on this thing. Can you imagine your job when you come into work that day? Count the legs on this. No kidding. (laughs) But they say it's probably not the last word on it because some species of millipedes are known to grow additional legs. Oh, my God. In their lifetime. Good to know. So that's a millipede that lives up to its name, finally found. All right. I'm going to ask you a couple short questions here. All right. Do you know there are actually miles of arteries, veins, and blood capillaries in your human body? Yes. Okay. How How many? I don't know. Just take a guess. Okay. I'd say 50 miles. 50 miles. That's a lot. Okay. But it's 62,000. Oh, my God. (laughs) 62,000 miles? Yeah. In your body? Yeah. That's amazing. Arteries, veins, and blood capillaries. That is hard for me to fathom. Where did you find that? Uh, In the ultimate book of useless information, (laughs) page 72. Okay. (laughs) What else do you need? 62,000 miles. That's a road trip in your body, isn't it? Holy cow. And here's something that's good for you to know, Bob. Most of that's what your blood goes through then. Yeah. What is it again? Artists, veins? Arteries, veins, and blood capillaries. So it's all blood. Wow, that's amazing. Okay. All right, here's a quickie. Yeah. This is good for you specifically to know. Oh, okay. In what kind of weather condition are you most likely to be stung by a bee? (laughs) I would assume it's summer, but it's not. No, it's a weather condition, not a season. Oh, Oh, an event. Yeah. It's like a storm or something. Yeah, but it's not. Okay, what is it, Marsh? It's just windy weather. Hmm. More so than any other weather condition, you are most likely to get bit by a bee in windy weather. Stung by a bee. To be stung by a bee. They don't bite you. They drill into you. (laughs) Like that one did to me back in whenever that was. That's right. When Ben saved my life. And you're Our son. Our son. (laughs) Our son waved the ambulance over to our house to save my life. Yes, that's a great story of the family. How old was he? It was Ben's birthday. I remember that. He was nine years old. And I I was laying there on the floor, uh, and I heard the sirens coming, and I said, Ben, those people are coming to help Daddy. So could you, when they get here, you have to let them know which house in the cul-de-sac we are in. So, and all, and then you came back and you saw all those ambulances and had a heart attack. And the, then they took me away. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So uh, yeah, I have a history of bee stings, and that's why Marsha referred to that. Okay, you got another one. That's or, it. That's it. I'm okay. done. You ready for my quote? Yes. This is a quote from artist Chuck Close. Okay. He said. Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. That's really what it all comes down (laughs) to in many ways. You can only sit around waiting for inspiration so long before you got to, you know, produce. You just got to start writing if you're a writer. You Uh just got to start painting or doing artwork if you're an artist. Yeah, whatever it is. You can't wait for inspiration. Right. All the time. All right. That's great. And that's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed hearing all of these quite interesting stories I think we had this time. It's pretty good. And some good Samaritan stories, too. Those were nice. Yes, I like those. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us next time when we return for more trivia here on The, the Off-Ramp. Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.